Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. If you're a casual sports fan, the emergence of the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour and its enormous sums of money has been a major story. It has all the elements of a classic drama. Famous athletes, outsized personalities, big, almost infinite money, international intrigue, and the internal workings and politics of powerful organizations. We're lucky to hear from former PGA Tour player Joe Ogilvie about the impact of Live Golf on the PGA Tour and the golf world in general. Based in Austin, Texas, Joe is a former touring professional golfer with five professional wins, including the 2007 U.S. Bank Championship. He was an All-American and All-ACC college golfer at Duke, where he majored in economics. Joe founded Ogilvy Capital in 2007, an investment advisory firm, and later joined Wallace Capital Management as a long-only value manager in September 2014. Joe's uniquely qualified to opine on the state of golf as we guess at its future. He also gives us some background on his development as a world-class player and his transition to asset management in his 40s when he retired from full-time professional golf. Welcome aboard, Joe. Thanks for having me on, Fraser. I appreciate it. This will be fun. Yeah, well, this is a lot of fun for me. Obviously, I'm a golf dork, about one one hundredth the skill of you. But also from the business side of things, it's great to hear your opinion. You're uniquely qualified to talk about things, both golf and beyond. Maybe take us through a little bit about your background first and how you found your way into the sport. Yeah, so like a lot of golfers, my dad grew up loves the game, plays it all the time. He's a lawyer by trade and his hobby was golf and he always wanted to be a lot better than he was. He's probably 11 handicap now. It was as as good as a two, but he just kind of drugged me along. And that was his deal that if he drug his kid along, he could play more golf. (laughs) My mom looked at that as family time. So played a lot growing up in a small town in Ohio called Lancaster. And then I think I was one of these guys that just got incrementally better and kept getting better all the time at all stages. And I loved it. I loved to practice. I loved to play more than practice, but I just, you know, in Ohio, you spend all your time in the summer months playing and practicing. And I kind of liked it. I was the smallest kid in the school. And once I saw myself getting better and you could measure it, golf's one of the only things in sport that you could see it based in scores that you can get better. I guess track and field's very similar, but I just fell in love with it. And then went to Duke, graduated in 96. Being a professional in golf is kind of funny. You just declare yourself a professional. That's the easy part. And then trying to make money is the hard part. Luckily, that sort of worked out. How did you take the success in the metrics and start to build the business around being a tour pro? Yes, it's funny. So graduated from Duke, you say you're a professional and then you've got to fund yourself. And this is before the NIL deals, which I probably wouldn't have qualified for anyway, but you start running a small business. And so what I did was I think my parents gave me, I think $5,000 to start. And then it's, okay, create a budget, go through that whole thing. And hopefully that $5,000, it lasted me about two and a half years. So when you're on the mini tours, which is think of it like single A baseball, you're playing for basically the entry fees. So if you got 30 guys paying $400, that's $12,000. Winner might get 4000 
and basically they'll pay out maybe the top five places you'll get your money back. Now that doesn't count gas, food, if you have to stay in a hotel and all that kind of stuff. So it's basically legalized gambling that's a little bit more organized. I first raised money and I only raised money one time, but when I got my, at the time it was called the Nike tour, now it's a corn Ferry tour. When I got that card, I raised $46,000 and put together a budget. You know, I was staying in the Super 8 motel. And when I was in a big splurge, I'd stay at a residence inn. But you put together a budget and you just kind of try to follow that budget. Hopefully you make money. And my deal was I raised 46000 My investors got 90% of the first forty-six. We split 50-50 of the next forty-six, And then I got 80-20 on the next 46. And luckily I made enough money. They got about a 90% return that first year. And that was the end of my money raising days, which is kind of nice. But they all looked at it as like, I wanted to support this kid that I've seen grow up and spend countless hours on the putting green. If I can be a little bit a part of his success, great. If he fails, which he probably will, no big deal. At least I can say I supported him. It was 20 two individuals at $2,000 each and a lady in my hometown that was kind of the richest lady in the hometown put two shares at $2,000 each. So she put $4,000 in there. So it was fun. And luckily I'm glad they got a return and I'm glad that I never had to raise money again. Oh gosh. Talk about pressure at that point. You're obviously played for yourself and your family and then you've got investors, et cetera. The thing I always wonder about ultra high level golf like that is how you as the athlete, not only stay healthy, et cetera, but how you get better in that environment. What is that like? And how do you practice to get better when you're driving six hours to get to the next tournament and so on? Someone told me, I think this was when I got tour and I don't know if it was, I forget who said it, but they said, never go to dinner with bad putters. <laughs> and I think that's right. No matter what you do in life, you always want to go to dinner or hang out with people that are better than you, whether it's better than you in a sport or smarter than you in business. And you just, you pick up things through osmosis and you want to hang out with guys. Some are poor, hungry, and driven. I think Mario Gabelli calls that his PhDs. And I always wanted to hang out with people that, that had a goal to getting the PGA Tour when you're on the mini tours. And then once you get to the PGA Tour, you want to play as many practice rounds as possible with guys that are better than you. So, you know, I, I played a lot with Vijay Singh and Sergio Garcia and various other guys that I'd meet throughout the way. But it was, for me, it was playing with people better than you. And then I think it's funny, Frazier, there are plenty of guys that I played with in college in the ACC that were much better than I was. But you turn pro and you start traveling and it gets to be, I don't want to say lonely life, but it's a life that you got to feel comfortable being alone. You got to feel comfortable being alone in your hotel room and you've got to feel comfortable being away from people that you know in your hometown and all that kind of stuff. And I was very comfortable doing that. I don't have it necessarily a roadmap, but I just thought that if I could be with people that were better than I was, I would get better. And that's kind of how it worked out. So once you got on the tour and you had a little bit of success, probably not easy once you're up there when you're with the creme de la creme and you've got Tiger hitting next to you and things like that, but you had numerous high finishes and you had a big win. What changes after that? There's certainly got to be personal validation about your game, but then also does a switch go off in your mind too, or is it just so hard to be consistently good on a 
week-to-week basis that you move on quickly? I think belief and confidence in golf breeds more confidence. And so you get on that flywheel of the confidence ladder and you just keep on going. And then there are guys that you look at and you're just like, okay, he's just fundamentally better. Tiger is like that. You stepped on the first tee with Tiger and he knew he was better than you. You knew he was better than you. And you knew that he knew he was better than you. And that's a difficult thing. But at golf, 18 holes, you're trying to beat the golf course and you try to not play the guy you're, you're competing against. You just try to beat the golf course. When you have confidence, that's easy. And then when you start to get in a slump or you start to overthink or whatever, it becomes a lot harder. And so a lot of it is goal setting. A lot of it is you hear constantly guys talking about the process and athletes talking about going through the process and things like that. A lot of that is another way to say, I want to keep my routine up. There is no better capitalistic endeavor than life as a professional athlete. And so you have new guys coming up that want to get better, that want to beat you. And so you have to continually get better. And that's hard. As you age, you have physical limitations. You start to have family. And the selfishness that you can have and display as a youth, you don't do that once you start having kids and a wife and everything else. And so there's various parts throughout the career that everybody has to deal with, whether it's in golf or any athletic endeavor, but also in business. You just have to set different goals at different times in your career. When you were back at Duke, deep interest in economics and business and the alone time that you have on tour, probably a great way to not only learn about more of it, read about it, but then also with the pro-am circuit, et cetera, to make a lot of different connections. How did you view that component of your life in the context of being 110% committed to being excellent on the course? Yeah, that's interesting. In golf, we are lucky. And I, I think professional golfers are lucky in in the sense that we get to hang out with and and see the doctors, lawyers, accountants, CEOs, hedge fund managers. We see a large swath of the American economy and we get to to rub shoulders with them and, and interact with both now him and her of people that are leading corporations. And we have a bit of an advantage over most professional athletes in a sense that we get to see the best and brightest all the time and spend in pro-ams four or five hours with them. I always thought that my career would end. I didn't know when, but I always thought that I wanted to go into some type of business in my 40s. And so I looked upon pro-ams as a way to meet new people. You never know who's going to be there to influence your life later on. And so I developed some deep relationships with some guys that I played golf with in Broams and I, that I met on the PGA Tour. And it's been one of my great joys in life is to keep up with some of them are my closest friends now. I was a little bit strange in a sense that I played on the PGA Tour and I didn't think that I would be on the Champions Tour and I didn't know how long it would last. I always thought that it's a gift to be out here, to use that time wisely and to meet as many people as I could. And I did that fairly well. You just never know. I mean, golf is a fickle sport, and I I probably lacked a little bit of confidence that my game would keep up throughout the years. And so it's kind of lucky it served me well. You diversified your skill set, right? (laughs) I diversified my skill set, probably out of lack of confidence. I loved it. And I viewed pro-ams. And I think that's where, when I was looking forward to the pro-am more than I was looking forward to competing on the PGA Tour, I knew I was pretty close to being done. That started happening when I was 39 and 40 years old, and I retired at 40. But it was great. I mean, I, I spent 15 years on the PGA Tour, and my gosh, I think when I graduated from Duke, if you would have said, all right, you're going to spend one year on the PGA Tour, 
would you take that one year and then you wouldn't have a second year? I probably would have said yes. Most guys wouldn't have. I never won in college. I was better than I thought I was because I had to study at Duke. But just, I don't know, I, 15 years, that was a gift. So you get to 38, 39, 40, and you've got the business aspect creeping more and more into mind. You're making these connections and you're seeing the climate around you and the PGA Tour. Maybe take us through your thought process, what that transition looked like for you. When I got on tour, and this is going to sound weird for people, but when I got on tour, there were only five guys younger than 25 on the PGA Tour. That's unbelievable. Yeah. And Tiger Sergio were two of them. I think Bo Van Pelt and Rory Sabatini were the other three and myself. So it's kind of unbelievable. And there were only, let's call it 35 foreign born players. Now I think there's probably darn near 40 guys, maybe a little bit more that are under 25 or close to it. And then you probably have close to 90 foreign born players on the PGA tour. It might have changed with live, but I saw that coming and I'm like, look, it's becoming a younger person's game. When you play pro-ams and you're intellectually curious, you kind of just say, okay, what's next? And I was exploring a lot of, I wouldn't have minded working at the PGA tour, whether that would be at the highest part of the tour or where that was. I kind of got sideways with (laughs) the commissioner at the time, Tim Fincham. So that avenue kind of closed but i met this guy scott wallace in 2000 i thought he thought he was only i think he was 27 at the time i thought he was one of the clearest thinkers i've ever met and then he started a money management firm called wallace capital and i invested in 2007 and joined him in 2014 so we started having discussions as early as 2010 2011 about me joining wallace capital and just kind of happened organically i went and met with George Roberts talked to him, one of the founders of KKR. I talked to Warren Buffett, what I was thinking, and it just kind of happened. And I love that the guys I work with are fantastic. And it's hard to believe it's been eight years since I retired from the tour, but it's been a very good eight years. So what are you doing for them? Uh, it's your process. What, what are your, uh, what's your day-to-day look like? Yeah, so we're a, we're a small firm. So we manage about a billion one, long only value, fairly concentrated, call it, we think like most value guys, we're buying a small ownership piece of a business that just happens to be traded publicly. So I do a little bit of analyst work, although I make no decisions on the on the allocations. But really, my, my highest and best use is business development. I enjoy talking to families. I enjoy talking to individuals. We manage some money for athletes. I really enjoy that aspect because athletes are very, very trusting with their team that's around them. But sometimes they don't have the skill set to understand that just because someone wants to be around you and quote unquote, help you out, they have incentives and those incentives are usually to line their own pockets. And so maybe their best decisions or their best, the people around them don't always have their best things at heart. So I enjoy, enjoy working with athletes. It's a small percentage of, of our client base, but it's a client base that I really enjoy working with. Really cool. Let's change gears for a second and talk about the the health of the game. And you, if you're a golf fan, you can't go two clicks without hearing about the Live Golf Tour. And it's, I'll politely call it, it's intersection with the PGA Tour. Uh, and even if you're not a golf fan, you're hearing it because it 
goes into all sorts of issues about sort of foreign national money and sports washing and, and larger concepts there. Big topic. So we'll try to carve it up into digestible forms here. But at the, at the top level, how do, you, how do you feel about the health of the professional game generally? Look, take live out of it. I think it's been very good. I mean, the health of the overall economy has been very, very good. COVID was very strange, right? I mean, you have this, what looked like it could turn into the Great Depression, turned into one of the great booms of all time. And normally when you have a hiccup in the economy, you have a fever in the game of golf. But COVID, I mean, golf was one of the only things you could actually play because it's outdoor sport. It's over 150 acres. Um, and the game just boomed. And then you juxtapose that on with top golf. And so you have more people playing. You have juniors and, and, and women playing more and more. So golf boomed. And the PGA Tour rode that wave a little bit, all the new young guys. And then you add live golf that comes in. I think on Twitter, I've used the idea that they've, they've shot a money cannon through the game. And they're going to spend two and a half to three billion dollars in golf. And that's never been done before. I don't think anyone really thought it was ever going to be done. Certainly the PGA Tour didn't. So you've had this earthquake and it's going to be interesting to see what the professional game is going to come out of it. But you do have, if you're Jay Monahan who runs the tour, you do have for the first time, all the best players in the world that, that stayed on your tour are kind of unified or are speaking unified in the sense that they're willing to play more, to set their schedule, to play these 20 enhanced events. And that, that's been a gift for the PGA Tour. I mean, to, I was talking to a few guys about it. If you're running that organization, the PGA Tour, you've never really had competition, or at least in the last 15 years, since, and call it in the Tiger Woods era. Now you have competition. Competition allows you to do certain things that you could never do before that probably enhances your product that maybe you've wanted to do, but you couldn't do. I think that that's, that's a good thing if you're the PGA Tour. Competition is good for anybody. And so I think the professional game, although it's splintered a little bit with live, I think long term, this is a very good thing for the professional game. To me, it seems like there is room for common ground, either maybe in five years, a merger of the two or two different sets of schedules where it allows for different people to interact with live versus the PGA Tour, et cetera. As you sort of think about it, maybe not in the next year or two as emotions are inflamed between the two principles of the two tours. But what does the future in five years look like possibly? Yeah, I think you're right. I, I don't know, merger. I don't know. If I'm the PGA Tour, I'm trying to solve for a couple problems. Let's assume that Live Golf is going to be here in five years. I think oil probably going to be needed in five years. So Saudi Arabia is going to be able to fund it. So I've got a little bit of an issue. I've got a little bit of an issue with the President's Cup because the international team has been somewhat decimated by Liv. I've got a little bit of a, I've got a big problem with the Players' Championship because it's always been the strongest field in golf, but it's not going to be the strongest field in golf this year. You're not going to have Cam Smith and Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka and, and Abraham Manser and Joaquin Neiman and, and a few other guys. So you've got to solve these fields that live as kind of taking players away and you've banned the players. And if you're live, maybe the United States, I think they, they're going to try to have seven events next year in the United States and seven internationally. 
Well, the world is a pretty big place, and there's not really a, a tour outside the United States that has a consistent product. You've got the DP tour, but the DP tour is, they did the same thing with the PGA tour did in the sense that their schedule got really, really bloated. They wanted player opportunities for the younger guys, which I get. But at the same time, the level of consistency in the DP tour in, the, in those events has been seriously degraded. And so Liv steps up and they have a lot of green field. I mean, you've got Australia, you've got New Zealand, you've got Japan to a certain extent, certainly Korea, India, the Gulf states, maybe eventually China, who knows what that's going to look like. But you've got a green field with very, very big countries and a lot of rich people in those countries. They want to see the best players in the world. They want a highly curated product. What Liv did and enabled the PGA Tour to do this, well, Liv can guarantee a field. PGA Tour is going to be able to guarantee a field, or at least 12 of their events are going to be guaranteed a field. That's a pretty powerful thing. And so I think eventually Liv Golf, if you said, Joe, what's the world look like in five years? I think Liv Golf will be there. I think it'll be largely an international tour. They might come to the United States two or three times, go to cities where the PGA Tour currently doesn't have a presence. And I think Liv was smart going to Portland, Boston, New York area, Chicago, Miami. I mean, these are pretty large markets that the PGA Tour used to play in but don't anymore on a regular basis. So I think Liv probably comes to the United States a couple times a year. They'll go to South America. They'll go to Mexico. They'll go to you know, all over the world, there's, if they're going to play 14 or 16 events, there's plenty of cities and plenty of people to make those events a success. I think that's probably where it's headed. I would not doubt if Liv or the PIF of Saudi Arabia makes an investment into either other tours or other, maybe even, you know, I've advocated the President's Cup. I mean, the President's Cup needs an international partner. Right now, the PGA Tour controls the whole thing and the international team. They have PGA Tour employees in the international room and kind of making rules for the international team. That's a big event, and I think that they think they'd be wise to find an international partner that the PGA Tour, while they benefit economically, they don't control the whole thing. Interesting. There's a bit of a brouhaha right now about the official world ranking points not applying to live events. But uh, to me, that seems like a temporary thing, especially with the relative strength of those fields. The 54-hole component, et cetera, but contrast that against the Tour Championship, which has 30 players, obviously with a great field there. That's got to go away, doesn't it? Look, it's one of our heroes in the value investing world is Charlie Munger. And Charlie Munger's always said, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And the power of incentives are giant here. And the major championships, there's been a lot of talk whether they're going to have live players or not. And I've always said that that's nonsense. Of course, they're going to have live players. They have the incentive. They're the four most important tournaments in golf. They have every incentive in the world to have the best players compete in their fields or in their tournaments. And the idea that Cam Smith and Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka and these guys are all top 20 players in the world, that they would be excluded, that works. It might work for a year, but it doesn't work going forward. Because if you start to question whether the best players are all there or not, and are those truly the best fields, 
they start to lose their prestige a little bit in the eyes of the press, in the eyes of the players and things like that. And so I just think the incentives are there that the major championships will figure it out. They have a seat on the table of the official world golf rankings. And maybe they go, maybe the solution to live is to have only order of merit based system for live players. Maybe it's a top eight or top 10 to start until they get in the official world golf rankings. But I think eventually that'll happen. They'll meet the qualifications or it'll be expanded. Keep in mind, we're only nine months into this thing. No one had any idea a year ago that this would work or that someone would spend two or $3 billion on it. I mean, they were talking about $10 million purses a year ago and those numbers wouldn't work because the PGA tour they were going to have greater purses than 10 or $15 million. So no one's going to jump ship to a tour that you're playing for smaller purses. But when Liv came in and Saudi Arabia came in and said, okay, we're going to spend $3 billion, the whole thing changed. Question as far as the potential, I don't know if weakness is the right word, but what does a post-Tiger money environment look like for the PGA Tour? My, my personal thought is that Tiger Woods is a transcendent athlete who brings the even the non-casual fan into the sport. And he's going to retire at some point, and we're in this sort of slow petering out of his career, fewer events, etc. But he still absolutely moves the needle. And that next tiger isn't walking through the door. Rory McIlroy, who I love watching, he's not that figure. At what point does that sort of cornerstone of the PGA Tour's money system, the slow absence of that, start to become a real problem for them? You can't really ask FedEx to pony up even more money if it's getting a slightly less transcendent product. And that's always been the last 10 years Tiger's been hurt incrementally, (laughs) some of it's self-induced. I think that's always been the question of the game. What's interesting, though, is you see that in every sport. You lose a transcendent athlete. But the way media has, has gone is sport is still the only thing that you have to see live, and you have to watch live. You have that dynamic at play as well. While Tiger, I agree with you. I mean, there's no one that moved the needle more than Tiger in the game of golf. But usually you have about every 20 to 25 years, you have one of these guys that's just different. You had Arnold Palmer that basically created the modern professional game in the 60s and 70s. I don't think he won a major after the age of 32 or or maybe it was 34. You had Nicholas basically 10 years behind Palmer come in. And then incrementally, you had a little bit of Gary Player. But those three guys on Palmer's shoulders and then Nicholas's shoulders kind of carry the sport. And then you had this dearth. You had Greg Norman a little bit, you know, Fred Couples. But those guys were really, they captured the imagination of the golf fan. And then Tiger came in in 1996 and really drugged the whole world and the whole world of golf behind him. He put us on the shoulders and he carried us for 20-odd years. There's probably a guy... Who knows? Maybe it's a female, but there's probably a guy that is born or or somewhere around 10 or something like that that will carry the sport going forward. What's going to be really interesting, Frazier, is does Liv get that guy or does the PGA Tour get that guy? That's the $10,000 question. PGA Tour needs to have that person. I was going to say one of the, the scary things I would think for the PGA Tour is if you're coming out of college and you're good, Liv makes it 
very financially attractive to go that route. Whereas the traditional slog to qualify, et cetera, to get to the PGA Tour, that may be too slow for some people coming out now. Yeah, it's an alternative. And I think part of this goes into the official World Golf ranking and is you need a qualifying system or some type of merit-based thing. And there's official World Golf amateur rankings as well. And Liv can basically, well, I, I think what Liv does is they make the eligibility different going forward. And they'll say, okay, you're not eligible to play or to be drafted by a live team unless you're a top 25 player in the official world golf ranking or amateur golf ranking in the official world golf ranking, or you've finished top hundred on the PGA tour or top 20 on the DP world tour. They'll make that the criteria and that'll check the box for some of the world ranking criteria. But no, I agree. And getting back to the money with tiger is I think up until the next tiger woods, comes around or the next transcendent player comes around, you can get a pretty good product by having 15 guys that are, or maybe even five guys that are Rory McElroy's, the Scotty Scheffler's, the Jordan Spieth, the Justin Thomas's of the world, Tommy Fleetwood to a lesser extent, and Matthew Fitzpatrick. So you can have a lot of storylines and golf needs to tell those stories a little bit better. When you run a sport and when you run the PGA Tour, there's a lot to be said for what the Olympics do. I mean, no one has any idea who, who these, the casual fan, the non-Olympic fan, has no idea who the best runner in the world is or the best ski, downhill skier in the world is. Europeans know who the skiers are. But what NBC does so well is these vignettes where you get to know the athlete. Golf has not done that very well, partly because I think it's had no competition. They haven't had to. But you can develop these personalities and develop these individuals and these athletes. And I think that that's where they'll go. And you don't have Tiger Woods, but you do have a lot of guys in supporting roles. And that could be a pretty good thing for a fan base. You're not seeing ratings crater. They've held up pretty well. So at the end of the day, it's an eyeball game and eyeballs for sports continue to grow. If you were chairman of the board of the PGA or Jay Monahan's interested in your opinion, what are a couple of things you'd be thinking about? You've got to come up with a schedule that's not as bloated. And you've got to give, we've never wanted weeks off. And I don't know if we're going to have any weeks off. There's got to be a way to do this where you're ramping up to the major championships. You're securing the PGA or the players championship. And you're making sure you've got the best possible field there. But then I think you really want to your season is now January through August 31st, right before football season starts. And so you've got to make those months and those weeks as compelling as humanly possible. And if you have to take a week off and the schedule, call it a breather, you should, but you've got to make the sport and you got to put the best product out week in and week out. And you've also got to change. I was very, very surprised that during the President's Cup and during the FedEx Cup playoffs, you still had tournaments going on. I mean, the Champions Tour events and things like that. But it, you need to just get everything else off the stage for your major, major events in the sport if you're the PGA Tour. And so I would make that change. But I've also got to take care of the up-and-coming players. i got to make sure the Corn Ferry Tour is good. I've got to make sure that, as your point, with the up-and-coming guys coming out of college, I've got to give them a chance. I got to give them a road to the PGA Tour as soon as possible. 
I mean, Frazier, I haven't played golf in eight years on the PGA Tour, and I would have gotten in, I think, two tournaments last year on my number. I still have a PGA Tour card. You have to pay a membership fee. But based on my number, I would have gotten in, I think, two events last year. That makes no sense to me when you've got the best college players in the world itching to get on the PGA Tour. And so I think that I'd change the PGA Tour U immediately. I'd work with the NCAA to get the men's golf tournament and maybe the women's golf tournament moved up. You know, right now it's called the second week in June. I'd try to get it to the last week in May. And I would give the top five players or the top 10 players, I'd give them status on the PGA Tour during the summer months and full status on the Corn Ferry Tour that next year, just so I can lock these guys in or give them a path to believe that they'll be in the PGA Tour within 12 months. Because Liv's going to be very aggressive, and quite frankly, they have a pretty compelling product. But that's the kind of stuff I do. I'd also try to find an international partner for the Players' Championship or the President's Cup. That is needed, and the President's Cup is probably a billion-dollar entity on a value standpoint. And so you can probably find an international partner that would pony up four or $500 million for that, and that also makes you bulletproof if we go through a, which I think is going to be a fairly challenging time in the economy. Interesting. Oh, what a lot of fun to hear about this stuff. Let's change gears one last time to sort of satisfy my golf nerddom questions that I always <laughs> like to ask. You had a 15-year career on the PGA Tour and terrific road up to that. What are some of the important shots in your career that you really remember? Golf is so fickle. I think it's just a cumulative amount of shots. I mean, it, it's the shots that you don't remember probably were the most important in your life, whether that's the when you're early in a, in a tournament and the ball, and you hit one right or left, the ball hits a tree and goes back in the fairway. And instead of making six, you make four, which you don't think about at the end of the event. And you go on and win or go on and finish top five that, that may have contributed to keeping your card or things like that. I mean, you hit so many shots over the course of an event. I mean, you, you know, you're hitting 200 and let's say, you know, let's say the par 72, you shoot eight under for the week, you've hit 280 shots. And so that's a lot. But I did on the 16th hole the last day at Milwaukee where I won the U.S. Bank Championship, I hold a wedge from, I think, 118 yards. And I was, I think I was one up of Tim Heron and Tim Clark. And at the time, so I went from a one-shot lead to a three-shot lead right there. And I mean, when you make it on the 70th hole of the tournament, that's a nice one to make. But it's usually the shots that you don't think about and the breaks that you don't think about that are really beneficial. And you never know, that shot that hit the tree kicks in the fairway and you make birdie and you made a great wedge or a great nine iron and then you roll in the 15-footer and that little spark gives you the confidence to proceed for maybe two or three weeks. Those are the little things that you don't have in your mind. And those breaks, those are the most important, but you may not remember them. Really cool. What are your favorite courses? You've played, who knows, three quarters of the top hundred and all that, if not more. And what do you like in a course? And maybe what are your favorites? Well, I love playing Pebble Beach. Anytime you play Pebble Beach, it's a gift. And I just love it. The best course I've ever played in a tournament was actually the Wednesday practice round of the 2004 U.S. Open at Shinnecock. Shinnecock in 2004 on Wednesday was the best course I've ever played in the United States. 
Now, by Sunday, it was unplayable. But <laughs> that was the single best golf course I've ever played in the U.S. I think when you start looking throughout the world, I haven't played a ton out the world, but of course, in St. Andrews is just so good. And to play it in the, in the Open Championship, the year Tiger won in 2005, it was just one of the highlights of my career. Played the last round with Ernie Els, and that was a ton of fun. I love Royal Dornick. I love Cypress Point, Augusta National. I love all of those. But and I'll also answer it one a different way. It doesn't necessarily matter the golf course you're playing. It's the three other people you're playing with. And that's the best thing about golf. It's always nice to play a great golf course. But it's particularly nice to play golf at any time with three other great guys or girls. I think that's the best part about the game. No question about that. One concept in the sport that gets a lot of attention is the explosion of length in the game. Do you have an opinion on that? It feels like the game has gone from average drives being 300 yards to DeChambeau levels of length that are fun to watch, I think, in some ways, but change the sport in a different way. What do you think about that? Yeah, look, I think that the USGA and the RNA were asleep at the wheel with a golf ball. Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas have been calling for limitations on the golf ball. Well, Nicholas probably for 40 years, but Tiger and Jack in unison for the last 20 years anyway. And the issue is, is that you just, you keep having to lengthen golf courses, which is millions and millions of dollars, not to mention the added water and the added expensive maintaining and everything else but i mean just the physical relocation of tee boxes and greens to accommodate the length of the golf ball is is staggering and so i think it's a real problem i think the golf ball should have more spin on it i think there's a way to do it an engineer can probably do this is that if you have a swing speed of 100 miles an hour you're probably not losing a whole lot of distance if you roll back the golf ball and if you have a swing speed of 120 miles an hour and 130 miles an hour, like Bryson does just create more spin. And if you do that, more spin equates to a higher dispersion. And if you have a higher dispersion, the out of bounds comes in more often. The water hazards come in more often. I just think the USGA and the RNA completely missed the boat on this thing. And the golf ball is a problem. One other weird sort of rules thing that I always have casual debates with friends is it feels unfair that if you hit a perfect drive in the fairway and it lands in a divot that you don't get sort of a ground under repair type of drop. Does that make sense to you? Or is that sort of play it as it lies, like Bobby Jones would say, and it's your job to figure that part out? Yeah, it's so funny. We always have the debate on the PJ Tour as well. And what really is terrible is when they fill it with the sand, because now you've got a, just a horrific lie. I'd rather not, not repair it at all. At least I know where the bottom of the divot is. But look, I think that's one of those rules for the USGA and the RNA. And you can make it a local rule and you just say, look, we're not, if you hit it in the divot, just move it. That only applies to the world's best amateurs and the world's best professionals. I mean, Jack Nicholas at the, at the memorial, he hated Sandfield Divots. So what he did is he's got a giant sod farm. And when you took a divot at the memorial, literally they cut out the turf and replaced it with real turf. It's unbelievable. Not everybody has an unlimited budget, but that's what they do at the memorial. And that was the best solution, but it was still, it's not a realistic solution for anyone. If I'm playing with my buddies, just take the ball out of the divot. That's the best thing to do. <laughs> right. 
Anyway, Joe, what a lot of fun. And I really appreciate you being on. Love to take you out to play if you're back in New York anytime soon and try to get down to Austin and see the MotoGP race someday. So I will uh, I, I will bother you when I'm there. We'll do that. We'll go play Austin Golf Club and we'll have a great time. That That'd would be, be great. great. Joe, what a treat. Thank you very much. Anything as far as people reaching out to you, any great ways for people to keep track of what you're up to? Well, I'm on Twitter at, at OglevyJ. And um, other than that, we don't publish anything. Twitter's probably the best option. But it's fun following everybody and just see the pulse of, of the golf world. And Twitter's great. Terrific. I'll have that in the show notes. And for those who don't follow Joe on Twitter, you should, because a lot of great insight on there. And for better or worse, Twitter is an interesting way to stay in touch with folks. That's well said. That's well said. <laughs> anyway, Joe, appreciate you being on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Frazier. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.